Father, we, we rejoice this morning as a church in the scandalous truth of your grace in the gospel. And we pray for the spread of that message throughout the world. Even as we've been reading this book of Philippians together as a church and really just the Bible in general, all over the pages is your heart for the message of your scandalous grace to go far and wide. And so God, we think of the world we live in today in the 21st century and want to pray specifically for places where it is most difficult for the gospel message to go forth. Um, places in the Middle East uh, and in Southeast Asia and in North Africa where the gospel of Jesus is often overtly outlawed or at least subtly denied. And Father, we think this morning of the nation of Pakistan, one of the places that repeatedly shows up on the lists of the most difficult places in the world to be a Christian, and where millions of Pakistani men and women have no opportunity to genuinely hear the truth of the gospel because their perceptions of Christianity are distorted by modern media, and the preaching of the gospel is not uh, tolerated very well. We pray for Pakistani Christians this morning, the few of them though there are, that you would strengthen them and encourage them for the task of making the gospel known in their community. Help them to do that with wisdom and with delicacy, but also, Father, we pray for their protection, their safety, and their boldness. And we pray that millions and millions of Pakistani men and women would come to hear the truth of the gospel and be able to see who you are, that you died for them, that they might have life and that they would repent in joy and faith and embrace the gospel of Jesus. And Father, much closer to home, we are grateful to be connected with so many churches right here in our own community of Hillsborough and Beaverton who are uh, proclaiming the truths of the gospel. We pray for their success as well. I want to pray especially for my friend Justin over at Colossae Church this morning and pray for his continued wisdom as he leads with his group of elders, that church congregation. Uh, we know, Father, that they have uh, received an influx of people because our friends over at Westport Church have recently had to close their doors. Um, I pray, Father God, that that influx of people would meld well with that church, that you would bring about a great unity in the congregation over at Colossae, that they would be able to display the gospel in how they connect with each other. And Father, that leads me to pray for anybody else who may have been part of Westport Church in our community uh, who are looking for new church homes. And we pray, Father God, that you would guide each and every precious soul and every treasured family that has been part of that church to find a new church where the gospel is proclaimed clearly. And God, as we open our doors to anyone who wants to get to know Jesus better, we pray that you would help as many of them who would settle here as you're leading here to see that and to be part of our family and help us to be the kind of church that embraces them. And lastly, Father, I want to pray that for ourselves. Help us to be more at harvest of an embracing church. Um, so many of us have, have had our lives changed and been part of this church family because people did embrace us and welcome us in and show us the hospitality of Christ and how we were treated. And I pray that you would help every one of us who are members of this church to continue that trend of opening our arms and reaching out and connecting with people, uh, faces that to us may be unfamiliar and people that may be new to our church family, to love them, to embrace them, to express interest and joy in knowing them and help them to find that they have a place here. And then together as a church to point one another to the gospel of Christ because this is your church and you are why we are here. So I think especially this Easter season, a time where we celebrate you coming to this earth and, and, and dying for us and rising again from the dead that we might have new life. I pray that that kind of pursuing openness would characterize every one of us, starting with me, who calls this church home, that people would come here and experience the truth of the gospel, especially this Easter, Father God, as we invite friends and family and we proclaim the truths of scripture. I pray that people would hear them and experience them in relationship with us, that you might be glorified and draw many people to yourself that they might find eternal life. God, we pray that you would do this in our midst for our good and for your eternal glory in this church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you for joining me in that. Would you uh, please be seated? I do want to echo Jerry's comments earlier, by the way, uh, about Harvest Connection right after this service and just encourage and invite any of you who may be new or newer to our church family here to stay uh, for an hour with us right after the service here. Uh, it's over in room 113, which if you're not familiar with our building, is just to your right as you exit the worship center here. Um, our ushers or the folks at our welcome center would be happy to direct you in the right direction uh, or just follow the crowd because I'm sure there'll be a crowd. Um, Actually, I have no idea how many will come, but we hope that you will come because we're going to stay. It's a great chance to uh, meet some of our staff and elders and get to know who we are as Harvest. Let us get to know who you are and find out if this is the place that God may have for you to connect with him and be part of his uh, local church family. 
Now, with that in mind, we're going to continue our series that we've been in in the New Testament book of Philippians this morning, so I want to invite you to turn your Bibles there. Um, we are also, because of the passage we're in, we're chapter 2, starting in verse 12 this morning. Jerry just read that for us earlier. We're also going to be uh, alluding quite a bit to some of the events that happened in the Exodus generation, clear back in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. So if you want to plan ahead a little bit, you've got a Bible, you might want to keep one finger in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to start in Philippians and see how those Old Testament passages get alluded to. And while you're um, getting Bibles ready to dive in, let me start with asking a question to get us thinking about what we're about to hear in God's Word. And the question is simply this. Um, is fear a good thing or a bad thing? Is fear a good thing or a bad thing? Now, we've got some like uh, muttering lips. We've got, I see a thumbs down over here. Um, bad thing, right? <laughs> um, good thing, bad thing. Kind of a hard question to answer when you just put it sort of black and white like that, right? Good or bad? Well, I mean, maybe it depends. Certainly, we could probably mostly agree, I would think, that fear is an unpleasant thing. <laughs> We've all been afraid of something at some point in our lives, and it's not a pleasant sensation. It's not usually something we would choose to live in or experience if we didn't have to. I mean, in that sense, it's certainly bad. It's, it's unpleasant. But you think of the things that maybe have caused you fear over your life or, or the things that you see people being afraid of. Uh, some of them are bad and some of them are good. Uh, it's bad if we're maybe afraid to do things that we should do, uh, like stand up uh, to the crowd when, when somebody is being mistreated and we know we should stick up for that person, but maybe peer pressure makes us afraid of how we will be perceived. So sometimes fear can prevent us from doing something we should do, and that's, that's not good, right? You see people afraid of things like public speaking or afraid of water because they don't know how to swim. And we rightly sort of celebrate and rejoice, you know, when the person who's afraid of water learns how to swim and conquers their fear. I mean, that's a good thing. We celebrate because they've overcome fear. So fear sounds kind of bad, right? And that's true, but there's another side to it, isn't there? Parents, do you want your children to be afraid of streets with lots of really fast traffic? Do you want your children to be afraid of strangers who may come up and want to start talking to them for no apparent reason? Do we want our children to be afraid of a hot stove? <laughs> Fear is actually a pretty good thing, really, when it prevents us from doing something that will harm us or other people. It can sometimes protect us. It can preserve us. Fear, for all its unpleasantnesses, has a wonderfully clarifying effect on the thinking, doesn't it? Uh, sometimes I can convince myself that I'm doing just fine in life and there's no problems in life when there really are problems and I'm just not facing them and then suddenly there's a fear, you know. Maybe I'm, I don't know, eating unhealthy or drinking too much or smoking or, I mean, it could be any one of a number of things. I'm like, it's fine, it's fine, I don't care. And then suddenly, you know, I see a friend who, who gets a disease because of the very thing I'm doing and they die and I go, oh my gosh, that could be me. And the fear jolts me into realizing, man, I need to make some changes, Fear can be like that. It, it can actually clarify our thinking. And so it's really kind of hard to say whether fear is good or bad. It kind of depends on what we're being afraid of. But it is certainly unpleasant. And it is certainly intensely useful when it is oriented toward the right thing in the right way. Now here's why I, I bring all this up. Because in the passage we're going to see this morning... Uh, it's one of many passages in the Bible, from, from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end of the Bible, <clears throat> where fear uh, plays a prominent role, and specifically the fear of God. You see, we've talked about fear of traffic, and fear of hot stoves, and fear of water, and try to figure out if those good things or bad things. Well, here's a question. What about fear of God? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Well, many of you who are familiar with the Bibles already know that when the phrase the fear of God appears in Scripture, it's virtually always in the positive. It's, it's actually a command in many places. Proverbs chapter 1 very famously says that the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom, referring to that clarifying effect it can have on our thinking. Jesus himself said, you know, don't, don't fear those who can, I'm paraphrasing here, don't fear those who can kill your body, fear the one who can kill, kill the body and the soul who can condemn your soul to hell. In other words, fear God, not men, right? 
And in our passage this morning, starting in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, we are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's the Apostle Paul's instructions to this Philippian church, this congregation in the first century. Work out your salvation uh, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This whole kind of theme of fear is going to run throughout this short paragraph we're looking at here this morning. And we're going to really be answering, asking, and watching the Bible ask and answer two simple questions. What is the fear of God and in what sense is it a good thing? Because as we've just seen in the Bible, it's a good thing. This is something Christians are commanded to experience. So why would God say that? Does God want us to be afraid of him? And in what sense is that a good thing? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We begin these first couple of verses. Let me just point out that we're given a command, <laughs> work out your salvation, and then we're told how to do it. We're told what to do, work out your salvation, and then we're told how to do it with fear and trembling. So just before we talk about the fear part, let's make sure we understand what the command is. Just a brief comment on that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that actually mean? Well, in a nutshell, the the command work out simply means to to live out that would probably be the most straightforward way to put it uh, live out your salvation so you're, you're a church full of christians the bible's already assuming so if you're a christian you've been saved by god from your sins you've been saved from hell by his grace you're bound for heaven because of his mercy and his love and so now he says work that out in other words there are implications to our christian faith there are implications to our salvation. This is the ultimate um, sort of argument against um, what we sometimes call fire insurance Christianity, you know? I just, I believe in Jesus to get my ticket out of hell, and then I largely go on just living my life the way I want to, knowing that when I die, because of Jesus, I'll go to heaven. But that will help me then, but my relationship with Jesus doesn't really affect me much right now. I still pretty much live my own life. You know, that's thinking of salvation just sort of as fire insurance or hell insurance. I won't have to go to hell. But there's, beyond that, there's nothing else I need to do. Maybe just try to be a good person, go to church, be a little grateful to Jesus every now and then for what he's done for me. But other than that, it doesn't really affect my life. No, no, the Bible's saying. Work out your salvation in every area of your life. This is about developing a, a mindset the whole way that I think of, of my life and I see myself and I live my life changes because of the gospel when I have responded to it in repentance and faith. This is a call to develop a whole life orientation toward God or what John Piper at one point called a Godward life. It's kind of an awkward phrase, but it communicates, it's effective. A whole life that's oriented toward God, not toward myself. It, it's a life that says... I'm not about me because nothing is about me. I'm all about him. And that gets reflected visibly and noticeably in my lifestyle. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, we actually get some uh, explanation of that in just a moment in verse 14 and 15. But just before we get there, let's deal with the second part of this. We said we were given a command, work out your salvation. But then we were also uh, told how to do it. How to do it. Uh, by the way, I also wanted to mention, there's the uh, play on words here in verse 13. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. Do you see the deliberate play on words? Work out, work in. You work out your salvation because God works in you. It's, that's intentional on the Bible's part. It's trying to get us to understand God is the one who gives us both the desire to live this kind of God-word life as well as then the ability to do it. So, in other words, if I'm a Christian and I'm finding that at some level, I, I got to be honest with myself, I just don't really want to live for God, it's kind of like, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> and God is at work in you to even change your desires, much less give you the opportunity. But there's that balance there. God is at work within you, and yet it is still on me to um, utilize those resources, to cooperate with the, the energy that God is providing to work out and work that out in how I live. So again, what does that mean? How does that look? What kind of a life? What is a Godward life that God is helping me develop? We're going to see that in a second. But first, 
let's just notice the manner in which we're told to do this because this becomes important and key to answering that question of what is a Godward life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear God. Now, what does that mean? Often, um, when we deal with this, because it comes up in the Bible so much, this idea of fearing God, it, it's a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Like, does God want us to be scared of him? And that kind of doesn't seem right. When you read your Bible and you realize that God presents himself as a loving father, that doesn't seem like he wants us to be scared of him, like he's like an abuser or he's some sort of tyrannical, you know, tyrant just, just ready to pound you down. You're supposed to be scared to death of him. That doesn't sound much like a loving God. And so often... Um, this idea of what it means to fear God gets softened by, I think, well-intentioned preachers and Bible teachers, softened into something like, well, fearing God doesn't really mean fear God. It just means like have a reverent awe of God, you know, respect him, be in awe of him. Not that you're actually feeling fear or you're scared because God loves you, but, but definitely revere him. Well, revering God is certainly a part of what fear means. It's definitely being in awe of him. But the interesting thing is, do you know what the word fear means? It means fear. This is crazy. I mean, again, you don't get these kind of insights anywhere else. I mean, this is, this is deep stuff here, okay? The word is actually the word from which we get the English word phobia. You know, arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Is that a reverent awe of spiders? Well, the poisonous ones you should have some awe of. I mean, that's part of it, but nice no, I'm scared. Or, you know, xenophobia, a fear of people from other ethnic backgrounds or other countries. It's like when you, you mistrust them, they kind of intimidate you. You're not sure what to do, and, and we think of that as a negative thing because it's like you're afraid of people who are different than you. There is an emotional or fearful experience that's implied in this that goes a little bit beyond just reverent awe. In fact, the second word in that phrase makes it really hard to misunderstand the point of the first word, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That word trembling is really clear, and it makes it hard to misunderstand the point of fear. Is this simply like a holy, reverent, calm awe, or am I scared? <laughs> There's a level of like, I'm emotionally a little bit freaked out here because I'm trembling. By the way, this is where we get to jump back. Um, to the Old Testament book of Exodus because the Apostle Paul here is quoting language directly out of Exodus chapter 20, which is right after God gave the ancient Israelites the Ten Commandments. And he's gonna allude to both Exodus and Deuteronomy throughout this passage and that sort of Exodus generation that Moses um, was uh, leading. He quotes several times from those verses and he's using the ancient Israelites as an example for the Philippian church in the first century as an example of what not to be, and they serve the same purpose for us. So if you've got your Bibles, um, keep a bookmark in Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. Flip back to Exodus chapter 20. I want us to see this. Exodus chapter 20, the scene has been uh, set. The Israelites have crossed the Red Sea. They've been miraculously rescued by God from the Egyptians, and God takes them to Mount Sinai, and he's giving them the Ten Commandments, and he tells them, like, okay, you know, stay away from the mountain for three days, and then when the time comes, I want you to come right up to the mountain. There's a little bit of debate as to whether they were supposed to come right up to the foot of the mountain or up onto the mountain, but that's not important for this morning. <clears throat> the point is God tells them to draw close to him at the right time. And so they're like, okay, we'll do it. And then meantime, God causes like earthquakes and thunder and lightning and flashes and like hurricane type, you know, weather events. This is the most powerful thing that these people have ever seen. And they're scared to death. That's the scene, Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. There's our words. And they stood far off. They said, we're not going near that mountain. Are you kidding me? Why? Because they had reverent awe? Yeah, but they had more than that. They were scared. They were scared. It was a frightening, intimidating scene. And that's the language the Apostle Paul picks up in Philippians chapter 2. And by the way, that's not just coincidental. You'll see more and more quotes as we move on to Philippians. We know he's alluding to this Exodus generation. 
Now, God had said, come close to the mountain, and they refused to because they were so scared. Their fear was preventing them from obeying God. So as the story goes on, verse 19, they said to Moses, you go speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. We're not going anywhere near him, so you go. Thanks a lot, guys. (laughs) You go, let God talk to you, and then you just come tell us what he said because we don't want to get near that God. We're so scared. Now, Moses tells them why God was being so intimidating. He makes the purpose of the fear that God was trying to instill clear in verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear, interesting, for God has come to test you so that the fear of him may be before you, and here's the reason, so that you may not sin, so that you may not sin. So here's what, here's what God is saying. It sounds at first like Moses contradicts himself. Don't fear because God wants you to fear. It's like, what? <laughs> But it's not that hard to understand what he's saying. Their fear was making them disobey God and stay far away. And he's like, no, no, don't let your fear keep you away from God. God said, come close, so come close. Yes, I know it's scary, but here's why God is making himself so scary for you. It's because he literally wants to put the fear of God in you. This, this is where that phrase comes from. It's this passage in scripture. And the reason he wants you to do that is so that later on after you've left this mountain and you're tempted to be selfish and you're tempted to sin and you're tempted to gratify your own desires and disobey what God told you, you will remember not only in your mind but with your emotions the experience of being so frightening. You will remember the God with whom you have to do. And that, by the grace of God, will serve as a check on your temptation to disobey God and go sin. So, God had already saved them from the miraculous ten plagues and through the Red Sea. They had ample experience to know that God was for them and loved them despite his intimidating presence. They knew from experience that he was with them. And so Moses says, come near to God and trust him anyway. You see, the biggest threat to the Israelites being a people who lived all out for God was not going to be the Egyptians, the, the Pharaoh who was out to kill them and, and who had just had his army drowned in the Red Sea, nor was it going to be any of the Canaanite peoples that they ran into later who would become their human enemies and would get in physical uh, wars with them. The greatest threat to them living all out for God was themselves. It was themselves. And their desire to live for themselves and do what seemed right to themselves at that time instead of listening to what God said. So God literally wanted to put the fear of God in them so that when they were tempted to sin, they would remember him and be tempted not to. Of course, trouble is, that didn't work too well, did it? It didn't work. They still, in Exodus 20, said, we're not going near that mountain, and they disobeyed God, and they got in trouble for it. Now, back to Philippians for just a moment. That's the background that the Apostle Paul is kind of urging them to. So work out your salvation, he tells us as Christians, with fear and trembling, the way God wanted the Israelites to, but they didn't. So what does it look like then to work out my salvation? Well, he picks that right up in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights to the world. Paul says, here's what this is going to look like when you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You will not be complainers and you will not be questioners, but you will be blameless and innocent. You will be children of God without blemish and you will shine as a light in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Why would the Apostle Paul say in response to the question, okay, Paul, work out my salvation. What does that look like? The first thing he says is, don't grumble and question. Really? (laughs) I mean, that's probably good if you're not a, a whiner and a complainer. I mean, that's probably a good thing. But like, really, is that the deepest most serious sin that, that, that God could think of to, to encourage them to repent of. I mean, you know, he, he doesn't say be a prayerful people. He doesn't say, you know, um, preach the gospel to everybody all the time. He doesn't say uh, live a, a moral lifestyle in your sexuality or in how you handle your money or anything. I mean, of all the things he could have said, he starts with don't be a grumbling complainer. 
And this has led some people to say, well, gee, we don't know why he started there. Maybe it's just because the, the, the church in Philippi had a particular problem with grumbling and complaining. Like, maybe they were, more, they were bigger whiners than average. So, so he just, he's addressing a specific problem with them. And while that's possible, I don't think that's really the heart of what's going on here because, once again, the Apostle Paul is directly referring back to, in fact, he's quoting Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So, once again, let me ask you to go back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. If you're not super familiar with your Bibles, it's the fifth book in the Bible, so you can start at the beginning and just turn right to see the word Deuteronomy on the top of the page. The very end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. I want to read one verse that Paul is quoting from extensively here in our Philippians passage. Quick little bit of context. This is um, Moses' song that he sang to the Israelites at the end of his life, okay? So the Exodus generation, the ones that had been seen the fearful God at Mount Sinai, had left, gone to the promised land, failed to trust God, therefore they were not allowed to enter the land and inherit the promised land. They wandered in the desert and the wilderness for 40 years while God waits for that generation to die off as punishment. And now here Moses brings the next generation up to the edge of the promised land and he's telling them basically, you guys have a chance to do better than your fathers did, my generation. I'm about to die, you guys are going to go into the land and, and he's calling them to do better. And so he's reflecting back on the failure of the previous generation to love and honor God. That's the context of this long song in chapter 32. Now look at chapter 32, verse 5. Well, we'll start in verse 4 just for a little back, background. Speaking of God, he says, The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. That means sin or wrongdoing. He is just and upright. Now verse 5, listen to this. And listen to the language. Think about Philippians. They, referring to the previous generation, have dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And then the song goes on and on and on about how great God was and what God did and he's urging this next generation to follow God. Did you see the words there in the language? Did that sound familiar? He says they've dealt corruptly, they're no longer God's children, they are blemished, they are a crooked and twisted generation. Reading once again Philippians chapter uh, 2, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, the ancient Israelites were not children of God, that you would be without blemish, they were blemished. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, they were a crooked and twisted generation, you see? The Apostle Paul is calling their attention back to this generation. He's saying, in some ways, you guys have your own Exodus generation moment here. Live out for God fully so that you can shine as lights for the gospel. The reason he picks up on the language of grumbling and complaining is that that's exactly what the Exodus generation had done. They had grumbled, that is, they complained, in the desert about their lot. Manna? Again? I'm tired of this. Where's my leeks and garlic? You know, we were slaves back in Egypt, but at least we had variety, right? So they, they complained, they whined about what God was doing, and then they questioned God, grumbling and questioning. They questioned God's goodness. They questioned his goodness. Um, has God brought us out here in the desert to die? That's literally what they were saying. Here, God had just miraculously saved them from slavery, and their only attitude at this point is like, God just brought us out here to die in the desert. You know what they're doing? They're calling God's character into question. They're saying, God's a liar. He says, I loved you, and I'm going to save you and take you to the promised land. They're like, no, you're not. You're just here to kill us. In other words, God's a liar. And God does not have our best in mind. He's just, he's just dragging us out here to die. He's not a good God. He's just, he's just playing games with us. He only saved us from slavery so that we could rot and die in the desert. I'm not sure which is worse. Right now in the desert, slavery looks better. So God is not good and God is a liar. That's what they're saying. That's pretty serious stuff. You see, this business of grumbling and questioning wasn't just kind of some general sin like, hey, don't be a whiner, <laughs> like some sort of superficial thing. This is deep. That's what I hope we see. This runs really deep in a person's relationship with God because grumbling, because complaining, and questioning God's character are hallmarks of a small and shriveled up life that rejects God and ultimately leads to eternal hell. 
Now, just before we get too hard on these ancient Israelites, let's be real for a second. They had it hard. Seriously, they had it hard. It's easy to look at them from our perspective now in the comfortable 21st century and say, my gosh, how could these people be so ungrateful? And actually, we're supposed to see that. That's how the Bible is written. That is the point. So we are supposed to see that. But before we get too hard on them, we should face the fact that they had it pretty rough. They were out in the hot and harsh desert, um, walking around, no air conditioning. They were homeless nomads. They had no place to like, call their own. Everything was temporary. It was being packed up and moved on a fairly regular basis. They had no ability to settle down and build a life for themselves and raise a family and, and, and develop economies and be secure in pursuing a job and, and so many of the things that, that we all want to pursue in life. But the problem is their discomfort, because they were self-oriented, led them to forget God. They lost track of all four of these things, at least. They had forgotten God's very nature. Remember that, that the whole fear at Sinai thing? These were the people that saw that and said, I'm not going near that mountain. God is like intimidating. And Moses is like, well, good, you should obey him. But God wants you to have fear so that you won't be such a selfish person and do your own thing and disobey him when you're tempted to. But here they are grumbling and complaining. Months later, why? Because they forgot about the mountain. <laughs> they forgot about God and who his nature was. The fear of God did not penetrate their hearts. So they forgot the greatness of God, but they also forgot God's past salvation, God's present provision, and God's future promise. For them, his past salvation included the miraculous rescue from Egypt, the ten plagues, and ultimately the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, one can, you can't even find a more dramatic miracle than that in the Bible, save the resurrection of Christ himself. That was a pretty significant event, and they had seen it, they had experienced it. But they forgot all about that. That was then. God, what have you done for me now? That's all they cared about. Right now, I'm uncomfortable and I'm unhappy, so it's leading me to question you. I've forgotten what you are and, and, and what you've done in the past. They also totally lost sight of his present provision. He had provided for them in many ways. Yes, it's true. They were in a hot and harsh desert. But there were streams in that desert because God put them there. There's no way a group of people that large could have been all together in that kind of climate and live. There just wasn't enough resources. There's not enough water. There's not enough uh, grass for cattle and so on for people to be uh, together and survive. And yet they were able to survive because God supernaturally provided manna from heaven and water streams in the desert. He provided that their clothes would not wear out on this long journey because they had no ability to just raise a bunch of sheep and shear them and make new wool and make new clothes. And so God said, I'm going to take care of you so that you can get through this hard, harsh journey. He was providing for them in many ways, but they didn't care. They, they lost sight of all of that because I'm uncomfortable and I'm unhappy. Do you see how, how pain and discomfort makes us focus on me? And suddenly I'm forgetting God. I'm not living a Godward life. I'm living a me-word life. And lastly, they forgot his future promise. I mean, for crying out loud, where was God taking them? To the promised Land, a land in the language of that day that was flowing with milk and honey, meaning it was a pleasant land. It was a, a wonderful place where you're going to be able to settle down and build a life and have a family and enjoy friends and good things and, and, and all the stuff that people did back then to make life worth living. God says, I'm going to give it all to you. You just have to hang on. It's not yet here. It's coming. But they forgot about all of that. Their current pains and difficulties utterly paled in comparison to all of this but they forgot it all. And they became consumed with how their life wasn't going the way they wanted to right now. That's why the Apostle Paul urges the Philippian church, don't grumble and question. <laughs> That's how you avoid living a me-word life and you instead live a God-word life. Their example is instructive because while their pains and difficulties led them to forget God, we can relate with that too, can't we? I can. Human nature hasn't changed in 3,500 years. Our pains and our, our difficulties still get us focused on ourselves. We see ourselves as victims. We see ourselves as the center of the universe, and we forget God. We only see God to the extent that he's helping me. I mean, think about it. If you're a Christian here this morning, do you ever catch yourself grumbling, complaining to God about the current state of your life? 
I do. I'm not real happy to say it, but I'll admit it. I get dissatisfied and discontent. Do you ever catch yourself maybe even questioning God? God, how could you let this happen? Where is God? You may think of our difficult relationships. Maybe you're in a really, really tough marriage right now. I know of several in our church. I'm sure I'm unaware of several others. So hard to walk the long, painful, desert journey through a joyless marriage. It's so hard not to complain about our lot or maybe even question God's goodness in letting it happen. If we're not careful, we end up grumbling. We end up questioning. And maybe that's hard to understand. If you're not married, maybe you're single and you don't want to be. Maybe you'd love to be married, happily married, of course. I see others get married and they look happy. It could be so hard not to let my singleness start to define myself like it's the most obvious thing about me instead of my relationship with Christ. Living in a perpetual state of longing for what I don't have and maybe even questioning God's goodness. God, I'm doing the right things as best I can tell. Why haven't you brought the right person along? yet. And we grumble and we question. It's not all relational stuff either. How do you feel about your income? Happy with it? Tired of seeing other people's awesome vacations on social media and new car purchases? You know, it's tough to look at that stuff when I feel like I can barely afford the utilities and the groceries. And I haven't had a vacation in years. (laughs) And we grumble and we complain. The list goes on and on. Is your house sufficiently modern and tasteful and spacious? (laughs) On and on and on it goes. It is so easy everywhere we turn around to find something about our lives with which we are discontent. And and again, I want to emphasize that those sources of discontentment are probably real. The pains are real. It's not that we should be just happy about it. It's difficult stuff. This really isn't about the having or the wanting in and of themselves. It's what the having and the wanting often does to our perspective. That's the focus of this passage in Philippians. How are we thinking? Are we developing a Godward life or a me-word life? Their dissatisfaction with their current lot in life made them a people who had become oriented towards self. And you can see it in the pages of Scripture. They just shriveled and they shrank. They became little pathetic raisins of a person as their world got smaller and smaller, defined only by, am I happy with what I have right now? And it ultimately led them to the place where they even complained to God and questioned his character. They rejected him. That leads to eternal damnation and hell. The Bible says, don't be that kind of a person. They should have remembered God's fearful awesomeness. He's the one who shakes the mountains. They should have remembered his past salvation. He delivered them from slavery into freedom. They should have remembered his present provision. They were alive in an uninhabitable place. Admittedly, not a very pleasant one, but they were nonetheless alive because of his miraculous provision. And they should have remembered his future promise. He was taking them to a greater and more blessed promise if they would just trust in him. Friends, the applications are not very difficult to see. Now, through the lens of the New Testament and the sacrifice and the death and resurrection of Jesus, they're even clearer. This is a call for us to experience, to remember the same things as modern-day Christians now, to remember who God is. We think of the uh, beginning of chapter 2 that we just looked at last week, the exalted nature of Christ, That because of his death and resurrection, God has given him the name that is above every name. At his name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, this is the one with whom we have to do. Does that come out in the way I talk to him? In the way I think about him? Is there a fear and an awe and a reverent respect for who I am talking to? We should remember his incredible salvation. The first part of that, verses 5 through 8 of chapter 2, that God 
Jesus Christ, being God, did not consider his equal position with God something to be grasped onto, but he let it go. He emptied himself. He became as nothing. He could not have been more high, nor could he have come more low, and he did all of that for you and for me so that we would have eternal life. What was I complaining about again? Do I remember his salvation? Do I remember his present provision? Cheating ahead a little bit, chapter 4, verse 17, toward the end of the letter, the apostle Paul expresses with confidence, my God will supply all of your needs, and he's talking about tangible, physical, and financial things, according to his mercies in Christ Jesus, if you continue to faithfully give. Doesn't mean I'm going to have everything I want, but it says God will take care of you. He is taking care of you. Maybe I am in a desert, but am I alive? That's the mercy of God. Maybe my house is kind of cruddy by today's standards, but do I have a house? I'm a whole heck of a lot better off than most of the people that have lived throughout most of human history. Praise God for that. I may have pain in relationships or the absence of relationships, but do I have relationships? Do I have friends and family members and people that I can care about? Praise God for that. That's his provision. I may not make nearly as much money as I wish I did, and that may not even all just be greed and selfishness. But do I have a job? Is there any kind of income at all? Praise God. God for that. That's all him. Do we forget his provision? And lastly, do we forget not only his fearful awesomeness, his incredible salvation, his present provision, but his future promise? Do we forget his future promise? Romans chapter 8 verse 18 says that the light and momentary afflictions we experience in this life aren't even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. God says, that's yours if you repent of your sins and embrace Christ as your Savior. That's your future. It won't even be worth comparing. Does that frame how I see my life? And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, that's powerful. Let me just read this for us briefly. The Bible says that for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, once again, beyond all comparison. Look, this is not to deny that life is really hard sometimes. It's not to say, oh, your life really isn't that painful. What are you worried about? It's to say that, no, no, your life and your pain is real. But in comparison with what's coming, you can't even compare it. So let that perspective inflate your world and blow it up from this shriveled little me thing that's about the here and the now because we have the promises of God demonstrated by his past faithfulness and the God who shakes the mountains is the one who's speaking. What incredible joy there is. And that's where the Apostle Paul wraps up this paragraph, verses 16 through 18. He encourages them to hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, that is in the final judgment, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The Apostle Paul here is incredibly optimistic. Um, For just the final time I'll mention this morning, he's once again echoing Moses back in Deuteronomy 32 because the Apostle Paul is toward the end of his life. He he didn't know whether or not he was going to be executed because of this current incarceration, but he knew he'd been at it for a while. And so he's saying, you know what? I'm already looking ahead to eternity. And just like Moses was standing there charging the people of his generation, fear God, do better than your parents' generation did. Love him and serve him and you will experience his blessings. So the apostle Paul is saying to this church in Philippians, hey, even if I never get to see you again, let me urge you to hold fast to the gospel of Christ and serve him because one day if you do, we will get there. And he expresses great confidence. He says that I will see you having been a faithful generation and I will have much more joy in your obedience than Moses had in the disobedience of the people he led in his day. He'd already said that back in chapter one, verse six. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He looks forward to that day. Can I just quickly say on as a personal note, I understand that confidence and that joy from a pastoral perspective, if I could put it that way. I am confident in the same spirit that is at work in the people of this congregation, and I get really confident when I see how many of you God has drawn to this church, to Harvest Community Church, with what I think is an uncommon hunger to understand the word of God as he has presented it to us so that we could know the God who communicated it to us. 
a deep desire to hear the word taught well and to understand it better and to experience in prayer and in living the love of the God who is described in its pages. And the unquenchable thirst that seems so characteristic over the years of this congregation to see God exalted, not us. Guys, I don't think that's normal. It's not normal for me. To the extent that those things are true of my life, that is God working in me. And I know that the extent it is true of our congregation, that's God working in us. I am so encouraged when I see what God is doing in you. It blows me away because only God can make us that kind of people. And there is great joy in that. A joy that has the power to explode our sinful tendency toward a shriveled, small, pathetic existence that's merely about our own comfort and what God is doing for me right now and radically reorient us toward a whole life orientation toward the greatest joy that there is. It's like the airbag going off in your car. It's just this compressed little life and when you get a hold of the joy and the power of the Spirit of Christ, it just explodes your view wide open and we realize life is so much bigger than me and there's so much joy in that. Or like somebody pulling the ripcord on their parachute, it's just all stuffed and packed in this narrow little life where I'm always feeling frustrated and discontent until I catch hold of who Christ is and what he has done and then woof, the thing just blows open and it's beautiful. That's what Paul concludes this with, verses 17 and 18. He says, and watch for the joy language, by the way. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. I'm happy about it. And I rejoice with you all. I experience joy along with you, and I invite you into my gladness and to rejoice with me. And you know what he's saying there? Again, there's some Old Testament allusions here to pour out drink offerings. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, they would bring uh, a slaughtered animal, meat, and they would often bring grain, they would bake cakes, and they would offer it to God. And some of it sometimes would go to the priests as their pay, but um, often it was just burned up on the altar. Nobody would eat it. And it was a way of saying, among other things, the food and the riches that I have, I offer some of that back to God, and it gets burned and sent back to him. I'm not going to eat something I could eat out of a reverent respect for God and who he is and a gratitude toward him and a, and a giving toward him. Well, sometimes they would actually uh, also have um, drink offerings. They were usually wine that they would pour out. You can read all about this in Leviticus. It's really riveting stuff um, <laughs> when you read that, but all these descriptions of the sacrifices they would make, and, then, and one of them, there, there were all these um, wine offerings. So they would say, here's a certain amount of wine that you would um, either pour out on the ground before the altar. So it's like, here's this, this wonderful cup of wine, which was considered a luxury in a day and age where you could pretty much only drink water and maybe goat milk and like wine. I mean, that's all there was. Wine was a luxury. I'm going to take some of what God has given me and just pour it out on the ground. And the ground just soaks it up. It was a way of, again, offering. Or sometimes it was actually poured out on the meat or the grain and then the whole thing was lit and just burned. The Apostle Paul's saying, I might be poured out like a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith. I think all he's saying there is, remember the context, the, the Philippian church had sacrificed financially to send some money to support Paul. And so he says, that's like an offering you've given to God and I've received it. But he says, what happens if you support me and I have the money and I can live for a while, but I end up getting executed anyway? Which could still happen. Then it might feel like your offering was for nothing. We gave and we sacrificed in the hope that Paul would be released and he ends up dying. And he says, you know what? I might be poured out as a drink offering. I think the imagery of, of wine being spilled out like blood was very intentional on his part. I, I might die here. But you know what? Even if that happens, nothing's a waste. No pain or sacrifice for the cause of the gospel in this life is a waste. That's what he's saying. But here's what he's saying even more. I'm happy about it. That's how big his view had been blown up into. I'm happy about it, no matter how bad it is for me. If Christ's name is magnified, praise God, there is great joy in that. I think the principle here is simply this, that joy comes from fulfilling God's purpose, not from maximizing my comfort. And so this is how the Bible's kind of pulling this, all this stuff together. We started with all this fear stuff, remember that? Fearing God? And now we're ending with all of this joy stuff, and hopefully by now we can see the connection. Because I think this is what God is trying to get us to understand. I think it's what he wanted the first century Philippian Christians to understand. Joy 
real deep abiding joy comes from fulfilling God's purposes for me, not from maximizing my comfort. The first uh, perspective orients fulfilling God's purposes orients us up and out toward him. The second one, maximizing my comfort, orients us down and inward toward us. Do I have what I want the way I want it? And will I be happy in that? Essentially, there's two chains of cause and effect that I think we could summarize this passage with, and we'll end with this. Here's how I think kind of the, the flow of thought goes and what, what the Bible's trying to help us to understand. And it makes sense out of the statement, joy comes from fulfilling God's purposes, not from maximizing my comfort. We start with fearing God. If I fear God, that will lead, he's, he's telling us here, to a life where I'm living the gospel. I'm putting the gospel of Jesus on display. Because there's this whole orientation where I'm not grumbling and questioning, but I'm rejoicing in who God is and I'm delighting to model who he is like, what he's like, and tell other people how they can be saved. And that, in turn, leads to being a light, to use the words of verse 15. I'm living a different life where I'm speaking the truths of and modeling the truths of the gospel, and that makes me different, shining as a light in the midst of a dark world that needs to hear that. And that is what leads to great and deep and abiding joy. So that's one chain of cause and effect. That's the one Christians are being encouraged and urged to, exhorted even to. But there's another one, um, some by implication and some by direct statement in this. The opposite is also true. I could also start with not fearing God. I have really no fear of God the way we've talked about it this morning. Which is gonna inevitably lead me to living for myself like that Exodus generation did. And my whole world is oriented toward, am I happy with what's happening with me and my family right now? Like, that's what I think about 99% of the time. That's just the, the glasses through which I interpret everything else around me, even when I'm not even realizing it. So it's a self-oriented life, which inevitably, invariably will lead us to grumbling and questioning because nobody has a life that is perfect. Boy, there's the insightful statement of the morning. <laughs> None of us do. We will always need more, want more, and our needs and our wants will often be legitimate. And so there will always be things to complain about. There will always be things to question God about if all I'm thinking about is, God, what have you done for me lately? But here's the point. This is implied in this text. It's gonna become really explicit later in the letter to the Philippians. It ultimately leads to discontentment. I'll never be happy. I will never experience the joy of Christ because my orientation has been downward and inward and I'm shrinking up into this small, little, black and white, pathetic, one-dimensional existence when God is trying to blow it out into full three-dimensional technicolor and help me see the glories and the beauties of Christ. They're not even worth comparing to the worst this life can give you. It's in conclusion, it's instructive to look at the first and the last items on each of those lists is a way to go back to our original question. What is the fear of God? And how does it help me as a Christian? Fearing God leads to deep and abiding joy, the likes of which you can't find in this world. That's what the Bible's telling us. Not fearing God, no matter how good a Christian you try to be or how good a person you try to be, not fearing God will ultimately lead to discontentment. I think in a nutshell, that's the message. It centers on the gospel of Christ. So which road do we want to be on? Would you pray with me? Father, we want to ask you to teach us as a people to rightly fear you, that we might rightly perceive where real joy comes from and fully live for that glorious end. I pray that you would do that work in my heart, and I pray that you do that work in the heart of every man and woman in this room that we might experience true joy and serve the purposes that you have for us most fully. We pray for your glory and for our good in Christ's name, amen.